Amen to that. Amen. You know, during this Advent season, there are so many people who want peace on earth. They sing about peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Everyone sees the violence around us. They see the chaos through wars and battles and even now the threat of terrorism around the globe. And in that search for peace, especially during Advent season, you have, of course, in Isaiah's prophecy, that very famous statement in Isaiah chapter 9, which is so oft quoted in these days, that there is a people, according to verse 2 of Isaiah 9, who walked in darkness, and they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You go through the rest of the beginning portion of that prophecy, and you find, for instance, these famous words in verse 6, For to us... A child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And I think for most of us, that sense of peace is only going to come through Christ. And in His first coming, this Prince of Peace walked on the earth. And if you, like me, were wondering where that peace or when that peace was going to come, we certainly saw that to some degree in His first coming. He was that one who was, although called a man of sorrows, was also... One who laughed. He enjoyed life. He spent much time with his disciples. And there was exceeding joy in the midst of them. But at the same time, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find in addition to this concept of the Prince of Peace, another aspect another side, another feature of the person of Christ that seemingly is not like peace at all. Maybe we could say the opposite is division. Division. And I want to talk tonight about the division that Christ brings. Now this may not be the kind of message that someone would preach during Advent season. We want to speak about and to sing about the Prince of Peace and the joy of peace coming into our world. We want it so desperately. And of course, ultimate peace will come. But for now, prior to the second coming, the second coming of Christ, while there will be periods of peace, there will also be great periods of distress and division. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. And I want to show you this other side of the coming of Christ in His first coming. And if you and I have been focusing, especially during Christmas season, on the Prince of Peace, this is, this is the other side of what Jesus said He came for. For instance, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Strange words if you're focusing on peace. For Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. And of course, if you're like me, you say, wait a minute. How can Isaiah 9-6 prophesy of the Prince of Peace 
And yet at the same time, Jesus himself, in this first coming revelation, he says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. How can it be both? He says, I have not come to bring peace, but a what? A sword. Everyone who heard these words of Jesus would have known the purpose of a sword. The purpose of a sword, of course, was not just for self-protection's sake, but for war, for destruction, for damage. He says in verse 35, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now that is a strange message. What does Jesus mean? What's he driving at? He says in verse 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now we're starting to understand. Comparatively speaking, if you love your father or your mother more than you love the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, you're not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes, indeed, of course, the one who comes is the Prince of Peace. But that Prince of Peace also comes to bring a sword, a sword that slices through the very heart of a person who wants everything but Christ, who'd rather have their family than Christ who wouldn't want to be ostracized by their very own for the sake of following Christ. That's what he means. And he tells his disciples this, this very message. Look back in this chapter at verse 5. These twelve, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, here's the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copy, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, that is, my friends, listening to the words of the good news, the idea that if you don't, comparatively again, hate your father, hate your mother, seeing this ostracization happen, and if it does, then so be it, because you're willing to follow Christ, even at the risk of losing your own family, preach that kind of message, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Just strong words. He further says in verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, that means, my friends, deliver you over to be prosecuted and to be sentenced to a judgment, even a death perhaps. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. 
For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. What a comfort for the disciples. These very twelve and those closely associated with them. The Lord will give you what to say when you're dragged into court. We know, of course, from the book of Acts that Peter and John were indeed dragged before the religious officials, right? They knew what to say. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, delivered. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciples to be like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, and that's exactly what they called Jesus, how much more will they malign those of his household? If they attack me, they'll attack you. If they'll say that I'm demon-possessed, they'll say you're demon-possessed. You see what's happening here? Jesus is teaching them in unmistakable terms that this is the cost of discipleship. This is the cost of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And if it means costing you your entire family, then so be it. Look at chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel, beginning in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, listen to these strange words. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. What does that mean? The alternate translation, the kingdom of heaven has been coming violently, and the violent take it by force. Yes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But when you're talking about delivering the message of discipleship in Jesus' name, there will be division. There will be division. Because Satan is doing everything he can to prevent people from entering the kingdom of God. And everyone who enters the kingdom of God will enter through the violence of the fight of their life, including even the possibility of walking away from everything that you've held dear. These are amazing things. Jesus said in verse 18, For John, referring to John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. They're going to say that about me, just as they said about John. And they'll say it about you as well. That's why in verse 20 he began to denounce the unrepentant cities. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not what? Repent. Turn. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom... It would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Very, very strong words. This is that other side of Jesus and his teaching where he undeniably says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. The sword that will divide believers from unbelievers. From the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Hades. 
That's Matthew's Gospel. What about Mark? Turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. This is that side of Jesus that we can't ignore. Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. Jesus did what he did, not by the power of the devil, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they concluded the exact opposite, ascribing the works of the Holy Spirit to the works of the devil. That's an unforgivable sin. And they committed it right in his midst, referring even to him as being possessed by Beelzebul the prince of demons. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they, what? Took offense at him. They were offended by Jesus. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do do no mighty work there. Notice that phrase. He could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their what? Their unbelief. He could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. How about Luke's Gospel? Luke chapter 4. And this is all introduction, by the way. Luke chapter 4. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now those were shocking words. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Oh, it's the Prince of Peace. They're marveling at his words. Aren't his words so gracious? And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. 
What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Why? Because he was talking about non-Jews. And they didn't like that. They wanted to be the hero of all their own stories. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, do you see the juxtapositioning of two things here? Look at back at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Verse 28, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now I say, that is a very quick turnaround. Prince of Peace, coming to liberate us, to liberate the captives, set them free. Yes, yes, applause inserted here. And then when he admonishes them, they instantly turn on him. I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. See, they were looking to accuse him, and they just wanted to find a reason to do it. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, uh, after, and after looking around at them all, he said to him, "Stretch out your hand." And he did so, and his hand was restored. Now you would assume the next verse would be, "And they were overjoyed." What does it say? But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. He was infuriating them. Verse 24, he pronounces more woes, right? Even in the beatitude teaching, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Oh my. Look at chapter 9, verse 21. You say, why are you giving us all these passages? Because, my friends, this is the division that Christ brings. Chapter 9, verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So much for the man who is called the Prince of Peace. They want to kill him. And Jesus knows this. Verse 23, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, here's this division. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Do you know what Jesus is doing 
at one and the same time when he is proclaimed as the Prince of Peace and he also comes to bring division? Well, you can't know peace unless you've seen what division is. And once you've seen what division is, then you can know peace. Look at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Division, division, division. He's drawing a line in the sand and says, you follow me. And all your excuses will gain you nothing and certainly will not make you fit for the kingdom of God. Chapter 10, verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Division, division, division. And each of these Gospels capture it. And the same thing is true in chapter 11 and chapter 14 and in chapter 19 and in chapter 21 of Luke's Gospel. And so and on and on it goes. Now I can hear someone saying, maybe not you, but those in a large crowd of what might be considered a few believers and many unbelievers, not just in Jesus' day, but in our own. And you read these passages like this, and people say, now wait a minute, I thought you Christians said that He's the Prince of Peace. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Why all the negativity? Aren't we supposed to just be loving each other? Well, you know, most of the time that they argue for such love, It's a kind of amorphous love that has no definitions whatsoever. Have you ever noticed that? People talk about, we just just need to love each other. We just need to be loving. Which means no rules, no standard, no right and wrong. And everyone can do exactly what they want to do because they don't want to be bound by anybody else's rules. And certainly, I want the Prince of Peace, but I don't want that Prince of Peace telling me that I have to hate my father and my mother if it means following Christ. And I certainly don't want him to say that if you plow that field, and you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. I don't like that. I don't want that. That's not the Jesus I know. The Jesus I know is the Prince of Peace. Now, we may be ready for John's Gospel. Turn to John 6. We have to have this kind of Jesus. We can't pick and choose what kind of Jesus we'd prefer to construct. And this is what Jesus does. And this is the response. Look at John chapter 6, verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I suppose that if instead here it said, I am the prince of peace, they would have grumbled as well. They grumbled. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, 
said to them, Do you take offense at this? That I'm asking you to feed on me, feed on my flesh, drink my blood, affirm that I'm the bread that has come down out of heaven? Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples, that is his would-be disciples, turned back and no longer walked with him. They're actually getting the message. The message of repentance. The message of turning away from everything you hold dear if it means that everything you hold dear is between you and Christ. And they're actually doing the very thing that Jesus would want them to do in this sense. If you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me daily, then by all means, don't follow me anymore. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea. Why? Why, Apostle John? Here's what he writes. Because the Jews were seeking to what? To kill him. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And he knows that in turn, they will bring a sword to him. Verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. You know, it's so ironic that in some of the same passages, at one point, they're castigating Jesus by saying, who's seeking you to kill you? And then just a few verses later, they were seeking to arrest him. And they certainly weren't willing to throw him a party. They were wanting to arrest him and unjustly try him and then execute him by the hands of the Romans. Verse 40. When they heard these words, what words? Jesus saying, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what's their response? Verse 40, When they heard those words, these very words, that he is the dispenser of living water by the Holy Spirit, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ, the Messiah. But some said, Is the Messiah to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Messiah comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And you know what they've just done? Unwittingly, they've just given Jesus' autobiography. Because that's exactly true of Him. And they're muttering and disputing and grumbling. No wonder verse 43 says, So there was a division among the people over him. Hence my title, The Division That Christ Brings. This is amazing. Amazingly sad. Some of them wanted to arrest him, according to verse 44, but no one laid hands on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Verse 45, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, 
why did you not bring him? In other words, the conspiracy was seemingly foiled yet again. We gave you explicit orders. Why didn't you bring him to us? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. They're confused. They don't know what to do. At one point they're saying, look at all the gracious words that are coming from his mouth. And then in the next breath, they're infuriated with him. But they can't touch him because his hour had not yet come. And verse 47 says, The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Chiding them because they didn't do the job that the religious leaders wanted. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, the Jewish crowd, that does not know the law is accursed. And then we come across one Nicodemus, verse 50, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, that is one of the religious leaders, one of the Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? In other words, this is a sham what you're trying to do. And I don't want to be a part of that. Doesn't our law say that you at least, before you already in your mind make up your mind as the judge, the jury, and the, and the executioner, that this man first needs a trial? Isn't that what our law says? That we have to do due process? And how do they reply to Nicodemus? Verse 52, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Are you in league with him? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And John continues to report the building of the case against Jesus, not because he's not the Prince of Peace, but because, like Simeon said of old, he's been brought into this world for the rising and the falling of many. And this is the falling part. This is the division part. This is the part in which Jesus says, I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is that. Look at John chapter 8. Verse 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now this is a perfect opportunity for them to say, We've investigated you, your teaching, your ministry, your miracles, and we indeed want to follow you wherever you go, and we're not going to take the plow and look back, not being fitted for the kingdom of heaven. We are so committed, like Peter, we want to say to you, Jesus, to you and you alone are the words of eternal life. That should have been their response. He's speaking truth in their midst the Son of God, God in human flesh, the Messiah sent for the salvation of Israel. And yet notice what they say, verse 33. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They go right back to their pedigree. Wait a minute. We're of the same flesh of Abraham. He's our father. What do you mean we're not free but enslaved? Jesus answered them, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. I.e., have you committed a sin? Well, maybe one. Well, if you've committed one, then you're a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. And of course you know he will later say in just a few verses later, and your Father is whom? The devil. 
incendiary words, to be sure. Not bringing peace at that moment, but a sword. A sword that cuts the division between would-be followers, sham followers, and real disciples. True disciples. Alethos mathetes. True disciples, real disciples, committed disciples. And what John is doing, my friends, is he is building to a crescendo. But it's not a crescendo in which Jesus is propped up as the Prince of Peace. It's building a crescendo on the division side in which Jesus is inflaming them by His words and His actions. John chapter 9. There's a man born blind. And Jesus heals him. You're familiar with the story. And what happens in verse 13? They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He, referring to Jesus, put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now again, this is a perfect opportunity for the Pharisees to say, Praise God! This man who was blind now sees. But instead, verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Is that not one of the most obvious realities of missing the point? But others said, How can a man who is a sinner referring to Jesus, do such signs. And what are the next words? And there was a division among them. A division. There will continue to be this division. As we close tonight, look in your Bibles at one last passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I ask you, not the Pharisees, not the would-be followers, not the disciples, not others, I ask you, in your own heart tonight, whoever you may be, for you are the one who knows your heart best. Where are you in the division that Christ brings? In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says in verse 4, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, Chosen and precious. There's a division there. Do you see it? Jesus is a living stone. And for some, like the Father, Jesus is chosen and precious. And like others, rejected by men. Peter says, verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, the ones who don't reject, the ones who receive, the ones who do come to Him, the ones who believe in Him. You say, well, who are those people? Look back at verse 8 of chapter 1. Though you have not seen Him, you what? You love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is it, what is it? The salvation of your souls. Peter says, there's not a single person 
who after the Lord Jesus was ascended to the Father can say, I have seen him. And yet, even though you do not see him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you rejoice in him. You believe in him. And you have the kind of rejoicing of joy in your heart that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And the outcome of that kind of reception instead of rejection is the salvation of your souls. You see, Simeon was right. This man was raised up by God for the rising and falling of many. And we, if we receive Him, Peter says you're like living stones. And you're being built up as a spiritual house, a a, a kind of growing edifice to the glory of God. You're, You're being built up to be a holy priesthood And you offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, referring to Christ, a cornerstone chosen and precious. There it is again. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame, will not be disappointed, will not be embarrassed. God's promise will stand. So the honor is for you who believe. But here's the division. But for those who do not believe, the stone, that living stone, that stone in Zion, that cornerstone, that choice and precious stone, it is honor for those who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone that the builders rejected, rejected, Jesus is the division between those who see Him as chosen and precious. And according to verse 8, for those who reject Him, He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You may have met those people. I'm sure most of you have had a conversation with someone. Somewhere where you bring up the name of the person of Christ. And those are fighting words. Just the name. But for us, He's chosen and precious. Are you here tonight seeing Jesus as chosen and precious, not only in the sight of God, but in your sight? Or is He that stone over which you stumble? Because He is for you the rock of offense. Make your choice. Make it now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, every man, woman, and child who has ever lived or ever shall live is making a choice to follow God in God the Father's prescribed way. And if indeed His prescribed way is the living stone the cornerstone, the stone in Zion. And if we embrace that stone, we then become living stones in and for His honor, receiving Him as the very rock and foundation of our lives. And for those who reject, who repudiate the Son of God, 
then you will forever in eternity in hell see Christ as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Father, open the eyes of the blind and allow them to see even tonight that Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, is chosen and precious. And it is He who once declaring a division between believers and unbelievers, receivers and rejectors, is for us truly and finally and eternally indeed the Prince of Peace. May we forever enjoy the Prince of Peace as we thank Him for the salvation of our souls. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your death and burial and resurrection from the dead and for bringing peace out of divided souls. Thank You for opening my eyes We're all like the man born blind. Thank you for taking the mud of the gospel and placing it on our eyes so that once we were blind, but now we see. Thank you that you are building in us this church, Thousand Oaks Bible Church, living stones to offer up spiritual sacrifices to Jesus Christ. And we ask You to continue to allow us to speak about the Prince of Peace, but never, never, no, never shy away from the reality of the division that Christ brings. Thank You for Him, all of Him. We praise Him now. For His sake, we pray. Amen.